into self-preservation mode. While keeping track of Dobbs's hands, he scanned the bartender's black leather jacket, straining to see if it concealed a gun. Concentrating on the nerve endings in his own chest, he tried to gauge whether the cord from his tape recorder might be visible. Then Armonti pulled his hand out of his left pants pocket, where he always carried a string of red rosary beads and a small stone inscribed with the word courage, and placed his fist on the bar, ready to fend off any attack. Trying to make it appear at least somewhat casual, he glanced outside to check if a car might be pulling up, loaded with hitmen, ready to get busy. Nothing. And nowhere to run, even if the Lucchese family's enforcers did roll up. So Armonti took a deep breath, lit a Newport light, and tried to play it cool. What do you mean, indicted? Armonti asked picking up from Dobbs after a few seconds that seemed like hours, and trying to prevent the ice ball in his stomach from causing a quaver in his voice. Dobbs continued, but Armonti couldn't follow the words. He was too busy retracing his steps, trying to figure who might have leaked his report. He was a veteran undercover cop with a finely tuned ear for how things were said. Using hand-to-hands to describe low-level drug deals was a habit of his. It was a term used in police precincts, not on street corners. And as he stood at the bar that sweaty Bronx night, wondering if he'd ever see sunshine again, Detective Armonti was sickened by the knowledge that he had almost certainly been betrayed by a fellow cop. During his ten years in narcotics, he'd purchased cocaine with a street value of $100 million, more than any other undercover in the department's history. He posed as a hitman and arms dealer and had been put in charge of training new classes of narcotics detectives. All of those late nights in silk shirts, the death-defying raids and mindless street talk, all that marinara sauce. And for what? To be sold out by a fellow officer? To be done in by a mob wannabe? An Irishman named Myron? I think they've got an informant, Dobbs said, still not tipping his hand. Someone here in the neck. Armonti exhaled cigarette smoke and silently made himself a promise. If I get out of here alive, so help me God, I will find out who did this, and when I do, I will make him pay. More than a year before Vinnie Armonti ever set foot in Sebastian's, at shortly after 7 a.m. on a cold winter morning, Lieutenant Thomas A. Williams was standing before a small group of firefighters inside the Rescue 4 firehouse. He had stopped talking, just long enough to balance a quarter on his thumb. Rescue 4, one of the city's elite fire companies, based in Woodside, Queens, had just received a new chainsaw to test. As shift commander, it was up to Lieutenant Williams to determine who would be the first to use it during an actual run. The shift had begun that day at 6 a.m., with Lieutenant Williams showing the five men in his command the new saw they would be testing. It was an amazing product specially engineered to help firefighters cut through walls and roofs more easily. One of the two men would use it that day, and now Lieutenant Williams tossed the coin into the air to see which it would be. Fireman Michael Milner won the toss. Under another commander, that victory might have meant that Milner would carry the saw into battle that night. But in Rescue 4, on nights when Lieutenant Williams was in charge, things were a little different. The loser got the saw because Milner chose to spend the night charging into fires alongside the lieutenant as the irons and can man who carried his equipment. 
It was a bit ironic that the men of Rescue 4 coveted every chance to be near Lieutenant Williams when they were out in the field, because, truth be told, there were times inside the firehouse when many of them hid just to escape his non-stop banter. He could talk sports, family, culture, current affairs, international relations, anything from the most personal private matter to the most far-flung theory. Whatever the topic, William's fast-paced, playful voice was inescapable inside the station house, as indelible as the smell of soot, the hum of fluorescent lights, or the chatter of the department radio. Like a broken record, the men would say to each other, he was vaccinated with a Victrola needle. If Lieutenant Williams had been a supervisor of lesser stature, it is more than likely that one of his men would have bluntly addressed the issue of his jabbering. Yet no man who worked in Rescue 4 could ever bring himself to embarrass Williams by asking him to pipe down, not even in jest. Some would feign sleep, hoping he'd find another audience. Others would slip out of sight, tuck themselves away in the TV room or a bunk, hoping to sneak a few moments of peace. But none of them could conceive of saying anything that might bruise the lieutenant's feelings. They simply respected him too much. Yet even if he'd been the most miserable, snarling lout who'd ever strapped on an FDNY helmet, there was one immutable reason why his men wanted to be near him. He made them feel safer. The most dangerous part of any call is entering a burning, smoke-filled building when you don't yet know where the fire is coming from. Lieutenant Williams was incomparable in those harrowing first stages because he had an instinct, an uncanny ability to find the fire. That skill made his crew confident that whatever would happen, Williams would somehow find a way to get out safely. The closer you stayed to him, the more likely you'd wind up a survivor, too. Milner had won the opportunity to partner up with Williams the night of February 24th, but once that matter had been settled, fate decided to tease Milner by depriving Rescue 4 of any real fire to fight. On most days, the rescue squad averaged eight calls per shift and it was not unheard of for them to make 15 runs. But throughout the ship that day, the squad had only a few minor jobs. The men enjoyed an uninterrupted dinner, which was a rarity. Afterward, they dispersed around the firehouse to watch television, catch a few minutes of sleep, or listen to Williams talk, talk, talk. Finally, at about 10.45 p.m., a flurry of activity burst over the department radio. A dispatch operator fielded a call for a burning building in Maspeth, and Rescue 4 didn't wait for the alarm to sound. Williams ordered his men to suit up, and they scrambled into action. As he climbed aboard the truck, Lieutenant Thomas A. Williams shouted a reminder. Don't forget that saw! Less than three miles away, inside 6645 Grand Avenue, apartment 2L, Michelle Anthony nuzzled tight against her husband, Shelley. Bundled in sensible flannel pajamas, they were too deeply ensconced in sleep to hear the first whine of the smoke detector outside their bedroom door. Although it was not yet 11 p.m., an hour when many young New Yorkers are just beginning their nights out, the Anthonys had neither the time, the energy, nor the inclination to stay out late. Michelle, a nursing student, was exhausted from a tough day at Long Island University. Shelley was a New York City transit police officer whose responsible nature was only further encouraged by his duties and his demanding work schedule. Married just eight months, they were already on something of an austerity budget, dutifully squirreling away money for a new home in the suburbs. But the Anthonys were such upbeat newlyweds, they never really felt deprived. Shelley had picked Michelle up from school that day, 
saving her the grueling subway commute. After a quiet dinner at home, they'd turned in at 9.30 p.m. and were fast asleep an hour later when the first spark ignited one floor below them, and the flames began to spread their brilliant, terrifying light. Their apartment was on the middle floor of a sturdy three-story building on a noisy business trip. The traffic outside was so loud that the Anthonys didn't hear a sound as the fire chewed through the building's frame, sending clouds of smoke up stairwells and plumbing shafts. It wasn't surprising that the wail of the smoke alarm had failed to stir them. Their home was a classic New York bargain apartment, dark, with few windows, and oddly configured, the kind of place where light and sound just disappeared. Michelle put a nightlight in the hall, just outside their room, and asked Shelley to install a smoke detector near their bedroom door. He teased her gently about being paranoid, but he did it anyway. By 10.30 p.m. on the night of February 24th, however, the alarm wasn't enough to rouse them as the smoke spread toward their bed. Shelley had always been a heavy sleeper. Michelle was the one who usually woke more easily. But her body had an important reason to need more rest. Although the Anthonys didn't know it, she was two months pregnant. When the alarm finally roused Michelle, she looked toward the clock. When she couldn't see the numbers, she assumed it was still too early to wake. A wave of relief washed over her. Then, slowly, she realized that the alarm was coming from someplace infinitely more disturbing. She took a deep breath and felt the smoke sting her lungs. Her heart began to sprint. Just as she had always feared, the building was burning and there was no way out. As she opened her eyes fully, she saw that the room was so thick with smoke she could barely make out the window. Shelly, Shelly, wake up, she screamed, shaking her husband, uncertain whether he was asleep or unconscious. He stirred, but he didn't wake. Her thoughts began to scatter. She had to get out, and she couldn't leave him. But how could a small woman like her carry a big guy like him? Shelly, she shouted, her words cut short, and her breathing labored from the combination of smoke and terror. Finally, he jumped up and bounded out of bed, instantly recognizing the smoke and making a seamless transition into a living, breathing version of the police department's emergency manual. Feeling the walls, he could tell by the heat that the flames had begun to climb up behind the plaster. We've got to get out of here, he said. Michelle was too panicked to answer. Smoke was pouring in from outside the bedroom door, but that was the only way out. Shelley told his wife to crouch down, and as the door swung open, they saw a wall of thick smoke from the ceiling to about waist level. Shelley looked back at her and started to crawl. Listen to my voice, he instructed, and follow me. Shelley kept calling her, reassuring her, repeating over and over that they were going to make it. The smoke got thicker and the temperature hotter as the terrified couple moved toward the living room and the stairway. Halfway down the hall, Michelle was struck by a comforting thought. At least, if I'm going to die. Shelley will be here with me. Keep moving, he called. When they reached the living room, with the smoke sinking lower and the heat nearly searing their hands, Michelle saw a glimmer of light. It was Shelley opening the door to the hallway. Coughing and shouting, they scrambled down the stairs and sprinted out the door and onto the sidewalk. The cold, wet pavement chilled Michelle's bare feet, but it was the most beautiful sensation she had ever felt. Shelley hugged her held her until her crying and shaking started to slow. Moments later, as she tried to dry her eyes, she noticed a short Mexican-looking man with a mustache, standing next to Shelley. Her eyes began to well up again, this time with tears of joy. 
The man looked so concerned that she instantly assumed he was ready to run up and help. Is there anyone else up there? He said in a high-pitched, scratchy voice. I'm not sure, but I think so, Shelley replied. Michelle was awed to think that some total stranger might actually risk his life by running into the hell she and Shelley had just fled. She was about to thank the man, whoever he was, when she heard the sirens growing louder. The fire trucks turned the corner, lights flashing. Suddenly, the man turned, without saying a word, and fled into the night. When Rescue 4 pulled up to the scene at 11.05 p.m., black smoke was billowing out the windows of the building. The place was going up at a good clip. A few residents had escaped onto the roof and needed to be helped to safety. It was unclear whether anyone else remained inside. But even when a building appears vacant, rescue firemen try to search every possible room for survivors. As they entered the building, Milner walked a few paces behind Lieutenant Williams, carrying a metal can of water for spraying back flames, and the iron, a tool resembling a whaler's harpoon that is used to poke through walls and grab burning pieces of debris. Partway up the first flight of stairs, Milner noted smoke rising between the gaps of the staircase, a sign that the fire was creeping up from the floor beneath them. He pointed it out to Williams, who nodded in acknowledgment, and they trudged on up. At the top of the stairs, they found an open door. Entering some kind of office, they noticed what looked like a maze of metal desks, bookshelves, and filing cabinets visible through the smoke. About ten feet inside, Williams stopped in his tracks. Something's not right, he screamed, pulling his air mask off his face so Milner could hear his words. He ordered the fireman with the new saw to head to the roof and forge a vent hole, then walked farther into the office, with Milner following. They were taking a beating from the waves of smoke and heat, and when they reached the front wall, Williams ordered Milner to break the large plate glass window that ran from the ceiling to a ledge about four inches off the floor. Under most circumstances, this would have helped clear the room. A fire's heat and pressure always rushed toward the easiest escape route, but the window faced south, and the wind was coming from that direction, too. The stiff breeze blasted the smoke back at Williams and Milner, who attempted to continue their search, pushing on toward the center of the office. When they reached a set of bookcases jutting out into the aisle, a huge gust of smoke and superheated gases overwhelmed them, instantly reducing their visibility to an inch. Heat radiated through their boots, gloves, and face masks. Fuck! William screamed. Find that window! We've got to get out of here! In their eight years working together, Milner and Williams had survived countless heart-stopping exploits. Yet Milner had never heard him use the word fuck had never heard such urgency in his voice. Milner was determined not to fail the lieutenant now.